Welcome, everyone, to the A Better Way to a Podcast. I am your host, Jordan, and we don't have Andrew at the moment. He is having internet difficulties. The utilities in Texas are doing Texas things, and unfortunately, we're waiting for him. But today, we have Eddie from the UK. I'm trying to figure out how to introduce you. Eddie <laughs> Eddie is a longtime friend of the page. We met him when he was on his way to Ukraine to do frontline humanitarian work and got involved with him when we heard that he was raising funds to repair and up armor a medic vehicle. Some of you might remember the patches, stickers, and flags and all that fun swag that we had a while ago that we still have some of on the website. All those funds went to Eddie to reimburse him for funding the money to fix that. And now he's in Rhode Island, and so am I. And I'm super pumped to have you here, man. It's so good to so good to finally get the show together. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean we've been trying for a while. Trying, yeah, trying in, in in Ukraine and then trying over here. And you know, the easiest thing is just meet up and do it live. <laughs> we just had to get you to the states to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's definitely been interesting setting up here. We were. This poor guy walked into this hotel room because, you know, obviously as professional as the A Better Way to a podcast is, we couldn't spring for anything more than a two-star motel. We've got the only table in the room. To be fair, the pictures were way different online. (laughs) You were sold sold a lie. I was sold a lie. It said there was a couch. It said there was a table, like a desk, a work desk, all that stuff. We're essentially sitting on what amounts or sitting at what amounts to a small coffee table. Yeah, it's not exactly um, luxury. No, we could hold hands across it if we wanted to. Uh, it's it's fairly short, and then we've just attached the microphones to it, but we're going to rock out with our mics out. <laughs> I'm glad you went that way. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking the time to come on, man. I'm really happy that we finally got you here. It's great to be able to sit down and chat with you. And yeah. Definitely. I met you for the first time in person, just for a little historical context here. We probably, yeah, we definitely came out with the episode at this point that they're going to be listening to this, where we talk about the Oyster Festival, which was the first ever fair that A Better Way to A did, public appearance, all that fun stuff. And Eddie showed up. He was in Rhode Island doing his job, not frontline humanitarian work, <laughs> his, his other job. And drove two hours to come see us. And it was a blast. I were pretty sure I dropped what I was doing. I was talking to somebody and I ran over to you <laughs> and gave you a hug. Yeah, man, it's so good to finally meet you in person, like having chatted for so long and then like getting closer and closer to the time. I was like, yeah, okay, we're going to be in, going to be in the States. Where are you? Like, yeah. This might work. This it might was, actually work. Yeah. Well, you know, like I was saying before. Andrew just texted. He says, I feel like I'm being disrespected. Just <laughs> having internet problems. Um, yeah, it was like I told my wife, I said, he's close. I have to go see him. To do, like, we can't do an online episode. And she said, he's not close. I said, he's two hours away. It's different than, it's not Ukraine. Yeah, it's not hours, even the UK. Two hours away in the, in the UK is like a long, wow. Like we say, two hours drive in the UK is a long way. But 200 years in the States is a long time. Because oh, you guys have like, the school I went to is older than the United States. Of That's absolutely insane. <laughs> By like 200 years. <laughs> yeah. I went to Europe years ago. Too young to appreciate it, really. But thinking about it in retrospect, seeing some of the things, we saw a lot of churches. Oh, they, and I was, they love their churches. Dude, but I was so over it. I was like, oh my God, another church. But then you realize, like, there's the historical significance of these buildings is absolutely insane. 
There are some pretty cool churches, but there are also a lot of churches. There's a lot of churches. Like, it was a very religious time hundreds of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Very In Europe, the religion was quite into it. Yeah, they had a lot of problems with that at one point. A few problems, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I want to know how you got started. What brought you to Ukraine and how you ended up there? So okay, so there's two answers. There's the altruistic humanitarian answer, which is, so I was following the war. I was following a few guys who were volunteering in, I mean, going back a long way. Started following um, guys like Robert Evans, a conflict journalist, started started being more aware of like conflict that was happening in the Middle East and like these quiet wars. I mean, not a technical term at all, but, you know, kind of Afghanistan slowing down, but there's still massive fighting. And then I had all these... You know, had all these Westerners that were working with the YPG and with the Kurds and doing amazing stuff. And I started following them and started following that kind of conflict. And then a few of the guys started working in Ukraine. So guys like Aiden Aslan, Sean Pine, yeah. following them and basically just like out of interest of what was going on. And then towards the winter 2021 and to January 2022, it was, you could tell something was happening. Um, there was lots of movement of the Russian side. The guys were all saying, like, you know, we're getting more attacks. Something's going to happen. So I was aware it was all heating up and I was aware that something was going to kick off, but didn't think anything of it from my point of view. Yeah. Just, okay, we're going to get something. Kicked off. And then I was talking to a few people and I was like getting really sort of following the war quite closely. And my initial thought was, well, I got to go and fight. Like these guys are fighting. Aiden was hadn't had any prior like military service apart from with the Kurds. But I was like, you know what? He's not military. I mean, I'm sure I can figure it out. Got talking to a load of Brits that were planning on going over. And we were chatting away. I bought a load of kit, bought, you know, vest and armor and started getting kit together. And then it was, our plan was to go end of April. And I can't remember what happened. Something happened. There was some big attack. It might have even been when one of the Foreign Legion bases was hit and a lot of guys were killed. And we got in touch, you know, the group of British guys, we all chatted and were like, they were saying, because they were ex-servicemen, and they were all going, well, we can take you if you want. We're happy to, to go with you, but it's bad. Like, it's really bad over there. It's worse than Iraq, worse than Afghanistan. This is, this is more intense than anything we've seen. And I, at that point, was like, okay, that's actually probably a really stupid idea of me going. <laughs> Which, looking back, was like, it was pretty stupid right from the start, me planning on going, but I was, you know, felt like doing something. I don't think it's stupid, man. I mean, I know my opinion doesn't count for shit because I've been over here the whole time, but I think it's... It's a gut reaction. Yeah. It's a gut reaction. And looking at it now, it's like, okay, me fighting going over there, I probably wouldn't have lasted very long, either being injured or I would have bailed. So I kind of put it all on hold, but was still like, okay, there's still something happening over there. And then I started following volunteers. I started following guys like Brandon Mitchell, who's a British guy who's working over there. And just... Through him, I started realizing there was a massive volunteer network. Really? And massive logistics, massive civilian medics. And I say, okay, well, I can probably fit into that somewhere. So I got in touch with a few people and I'm like, okay, I want to come across. What can I do? What can I do to help? And I thought everyone would be going, you're crazy. I thought everyone would be, don't do it. You've got no experience. We don't want you over here. But every single person I spoke to was like, yeah, come do it. We need people who are willing to help out. And then a few people were like, yeah, okay, we need people with vehicles, you know, vans, four by fours, whatever you've got. So I can buy a van, I can buy something. And so I picked up a Hilux, a 2008 Hilux for a pretty good price. It was pretty knackered, but you know, it's going to the front line. It, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. And yeah, sort of quit my job, handed my notice in July, 2022. 
and then finished off the season. So I worked you know, the, the work I do is, is very seasonal based. Finished off the summer season, uh, got back to the UK, spent about five days in the UK and then just drove to Ukraine. Met up with some British, more, some more Brits, uh, a couple of guys who were traffic officers who had been taking vehicles over and then also a British guy and his friend who were EOD. We oh, wow. We drove across together with, I think we had four vehicles in the end and yeah, drove three days through Europe to the border. And you were there. And you're there. It's actually surprisingly easy to get to a war zone. Which is, <laughs> well, when you're landlocked like Europe, I mean, it's such a foreign concept to Americans because we, we haven't been able to drive to a war. And well, you guys got the best defense against wars. You got two massive oceans. So you're, yeah, uh, and then you know the Canucks and, and the Mexicans. <laughs> so it definitely. I mean, it's a natural barrier for sure, and that's definitely helps us. I'm sure there are plenty of people who would have tried, or the development of our country would have been way different if we had been landlocked. Oh, for sure, yeah. But yeah, it is, it's such a wild concept that you just drove to the front line, essentially. I mean, yeah. you know, or you could. And yeah, it's uh, like, I mean, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it was something like 1,800 miles. Yeah. Between 1,500 and 2,000 miles, I can't remember exactly. And I said to someone, like, it's, you know, it's 1,500, 1,800 miles to get there. And I thought, you know, that's a long drive. And they're like, that's pretty close. <laughs> I was like, shit, that is pretty close. It's like a road trip. I mean, really. It's a road trip. <laughs> wow. So you decided you were going to go over there, help in any way that you can, any way that you could. Did you know what exactly you were going to be doing when you were driving over there? I'd been talking to a few people and had a rough idea of wanting to, I knew I wanted to go frontline, which I kept quiet. <laughs> from family and friends for uh, obvious reasons still probably. keep it reasonably quiet and my parents are going to listen to this and <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I sort of knew I wanted to do frontline stuff I knew I wanted to do stuff that wasn't like crossing the border I was my job now is sailing yachts and cross oceans and doing crazy shit on boats so I knew I was quite keen to get involved with some crazy shit yeah I mean I've certainly found plenty of that <laughs> but um, the plan was kind of meet up with these people that I've been talking to and just basically fit in wherever I could. I hadn't planned to be a medic or hadn't planned to do specifically anything. It was just, I've got a vehicle, I've got these set of skills, got these contacts, we'll make it work. And it has worked so far. A lot of the contacts that I had at the start, um, not in contact with anymore for various reasons. And it's it kind of something that I learned very quick is whoever you know, whoever you've been talking to when you're not in the country, it's going to change a lot once you are in the country. Yeah. I mean, all the, all the, most of the connections that I have now are from meeting people in country and just, yeah, talking, getting involved with groups, talking to people. And you get a much better idea of what people are like when you do that. I'm sure. And when I first met you, I, I can't say we, it's me talking to you. <laughs> when I first met you, you were working with that unit who you had gotten the truck for. Yeah. And it seemed like you were, I think at the time you said that they were providing security for you doing the humanitarian aid that you were doing and you were giving out blankets and yeah. um, food and toiletries and stuff like that. I remember at, at, like when we first met, because yeah, the first video you sent me, you just handing out supplies out of the back yeah, of the car. Yeah, um, that was a video from Bakhmut in, I want to say December. Like that stretch when we were going into Bakhmut was just crazy. Like it was several weeks of just nonstop and it was such a blur. Yeah. But yeah, so we were chatting Um yeah, I was working with a guy who's ESPU, so Ukrainian secret, oh, not secret service, but their intelligence wing of their, okay. their military. And uh, he was someone I'd met um, 
handing out uniforms to some soldiers and his unit was at the gas station which we were meeting at and they were all pretty badly equipped so we got some stuff to them and I was chatting with him and he was saying that his unit needed some stuff, his team needed some stuff so we ran some stuff down to them and then we just got... uh, we went into Bakhmut with them. We were we were meeting just outside, and then he offered for us to go into the city, which was I mean this was December last year, so it was when it was pretty well known that it was a bit of a bit of a mission going in. So we were just piled in the back of their car, went in, and just sort of saw what it was like. Had a bit of an assessment, kind of go in, meet some people, see what see what the needs are, and then after that we organised some regular trips with the unit. Um, they were. So my friend who took us in the first time, he was working with this unit, like attached to this unit. And so they were helping us out. And then just, I mean, everyone in Ukraine is so nice, but these guys were awesome. They looked after us. And at the last time we went in, we had three of us and three Ukrainians because it got to a point where, I think this was about two weeks before they shut the city down to volunteers because it had got to a point where the Russians were starting to come into the Ukrainian-held areas contested areas in Ukrainian uniforms. Jeez. And you know, at points it was, we were never that close to the fighting, but it was close enough that it was risky. Yeah. So we had three of us and then each one of us had a security. Well, you have to think your priorities are much different than somebody who is, say, fighting on the front line because you're there while logistics, we, uh, when I was in the Marines, we used to make fun of people who weren't infantry. And it's yeah. so silly now in retrospect because I didn't really do anything when I was in any, anything. <laughs> no, you know, but we, it was just like the way you, you just gag on people. You call them pogues and yeah, a person yeah. other than grunt. And they would always say things like bullets don't fly without supply. And you'd laugh because you'd be like, oh, like, what are you, you giving away Q-tips and stuff like that? Like, yeah, nobody <laughs> needs that kind of stuff. But it really makes you think, you know, there's the reason that the United States military is so strong is because of its logistical yeah, network. 100%. Very 100%. few, like a small portion of, I mean, relatively small, I should say there's, tens of thousands of people in the combat arms roles, but relatively small portion of the military is frontline fighters. And the significant majority of them are people that just supply them and people that make sure that the machine keeps running. So you being there and keeping people supplied and helping the civilians, you've got to keep in mind that it doesn't make much sense for you to be in an area where there are actively Russians coming in and out where your life is in danger because you're not going to benefit anybody yeah. if you die. <laughs> you know, you're not, it's not like, yeah, you know. So I think the fact that you stayed there for as long as you could and helped a lot of those people because there were still civilians living in Bakhmut when they told you guys to get out of there, right? Yeah, I mean, we the last the last trip we did in there, it's impossible to get an accurate number of yeah. how many civilians because a lot of the civilians lied and we heard stories of there being, we saw children in there more than there should be. Yeah. I mean, there shouldn't be any children in there, and it was heartbreaking seeing it. But you, you hear stories of parents with their children who basically hide the children from the Ukrainian authorities because they know that the Ukrainians are going to pull the children out. So they, and you know, they had all these weird ideas about what the Russians were bringing for them, and it was, you know, so it's quite, it's quite scary. Sit like talking to people, and were there Ukrainians who thought the Russians were bringing aid, or is that what you mean? Or they basically thought the Russians were liberators. Yes, and so most of the people that were staying in the frontline cities, you know, the, the cities that are actually you know, contested, they think that once the Russians come, life will be better. Yeah, because that's what they've been told. You know, there's a very, very complicated the whole cultural stuff because. Russia having been involved in Ukraine for so long with their general fuckery. Mm-hmm. It's so much 
deep ingrained belief that Russia is the good guys. Yeah. And going in and seeing the damage in there and seeing like, I never saw Bakhmut before it was destroyed, but it looked like a stunning city. And then you go in and you see just not a single building untouched. Shell craters everywhere. There's, it's not a city anymore. When we were going in, it was still relatively intact compared to how it is now. You're talking to people and they're going, oh, but the Russians will come. The Russians are going to help us out. It's like, no, this is the Russians coming. This destroyed city is what happens when the Russians come. Damn. And they're just so, they have it in their minds that things get better when the Russians are here. It's sad. It's really sad. It is. That's, I don't know how else to describe it other than being in an abusive relationship or something like that. Obviously on a much grander scale, but that is typical of someone who's not able to leave or is convinced that they're making the right choice by staying in an abusive relationship after example, after example, to the contrary, justifying it and ignoring it. And that is a shame. That's when we go into those places, we are very, you're obviously very aware of, some people may not be happy with you there. Um, yeah. But you're also, you try and make it very clear that you're there to help and you, you are pro-Ukrainian, that this is the Ukrainians helping. And so it's, you don't want to try and, if they've got their pre-hell views, you don't want to shit all over them. But you also want to make sure that they know, they've seen you help. They've seen that Ukraine is the one offering the help. That like our side is the right side, and which it is. And it's, but it's, yeah, it's always very difficult going to these places and knowing that, we could go in and we could pull a load of people out. We have set, we always go in with several vehicles and you could help people. You could pull a couple of families out each time, but they don't, they, they want to stay. They're not interested. And that's really interesting because we don't hear this side of the story really in our media. You know, they don't talk about it's painted in a very black and white light when they show Ukrainians, especially in the beginning during, you know, while people were leaving Ukraine. They showed kind of like a, it was like a refugee type scenario where yeah. Ukrainians sleeping in subway stations and clamoring to get out of the country. And you see people living in the cities staying behind, but they don't really explain to you why. And they certainly don't tell you that there's this view that some of them have that the Russians are the good guys. You know, it makes me think that it's. I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of media. I feel like it's intentionally left out. Yeah. You can't, I feel like any kind of nuance in the media is almost self-sabotaging for the media because it makes you think it doesn't make you have loud emotions immediately that drum up views. So it's really interesting to hear this. It makes you wonder, you know, how these people feel now and if they still feel the same way or if they're still alive, if they're still alive, you know, it's, it's just absolutely insane, you know, that guy saying that this is different than Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, we've never, in my lifetime, I have not experienced anything like this, any kind of conflict or war yeah. like this, especially one so publicized and so politicized. You know, when we went to Iraq, we're recording this on September 11th, ironically. <laughs> yeah. um, happy birthday, by the Thanks, way. <laughs> <laughs> and happy anniversary to Max, if you're listening. It's so funny. I mean, you didn't choose to be born on September 11th, but... <laughs> You get a little overshadowed in the birthday parties. I mean, it'd be kind of, I mean, I don't know how well received it would be, but you ever think of having like a dark humor birthday cake? No, but you give me an idea. Especially as a Brit. It's like, you know, that's... Yeah, I think it would be... (laughs) Not that we're saying what it should be or anything like that, but... You're making your own assumptions. I know, I know. But yeah, we've never, I mean, when we went and invaded Iraq after September 11th, we were told that we had to go to Iraq to find weapons of mass destruction and to take Saddam Hussein down. 
And people really didn't ask questions. It was also televised, but in a very watered down manner, I would say. There wasn't, there, <laughs> there wasn't weren't drone videos. Had a GoPro and, no, exactly. Yeah, and it was, drone, there weren't drone videos of people dropping grenades on other people in foxholes. It is, I think we are learning a lot from this, as awful as that sounds. You know, I don't, I wish we could learn things in other ways, but it's absolutely, it's crazy seeing this go on in real time and being on a Telegram channel and getting videos from people who are uploading them, you know, immediately after they take place. That's mad. It's a scale that we just, we've never seen before. And as you say, yeah, we have access to pretty much every inch of the war. Yeah. And all in your pocket. And it's it's scary how much we see. It also, like, as you're saying with the, the media has their narrative they're pushing and they put out a certain a certain story. But it's so easy to check that. But it's also so many people don't check it. Oh, people take it as gospel. Yeah. People take whatever the media says as gospel, especially if they're, you know, confirmation bias is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And when you hear something that you agree with, you automatically assume it's correct. That's what confirmation bias is for people who didn't know what it was. (laughs) (laughs) See, I know what I'm talking about. I know words. I'm good with those. (laughs) (laughs) Your words sound better than mine. But, uh, So when you went there, did you have kind of like a time frame in mind or were you just going to stay for as long as you could? Yeah, initially, the initial plan was sort of three to five months. I kind of thought I'd do the winter and I said my job's seasonal so I can make a big difference over the winter or, or hopefully make a big difference over the winter and then jump back into real work come January, February, March. I got two weeks into it and just decided to stay. Just thought, you know what, this is the, this is the right thing to do right now. I sort of already said so I had quite a few people that I was talking to, so I thought, you know what, I've got enough contacts here that I can I can make this work. I mean, there was no no real difference. I didn't change the way I was working. So when I decided to stay, it just became like, a, okay, well, rather than planning to finish it in March, let's just keep going. And it just means that I've managed to set up a lot more contacts, a lot more longer term projects. And the only way to really do effective work is stay long term. You can get People coming in for a month, a couple of months, it's great. It's really good to have people, you know, come in, do plan a short period of time because then you know you're not going to get burnt out or you can just work hard in those months or whatever it is. Yeah. But if you want to make a difference, then you've got to stay long term. Or if you want to make a big difference because then there's so many contacts to build, so much planning to do. If you want to get, I was living in Kiev and I don't want to say commuting, but driving down to the east and it was like a nine hour drive. Wow. And I was doing that twice a week, maybe. It was expensive. It really sucked because the roads were pretty bad. And it was just exhausting. And you're just driving back and forth. And I'm sure. We're fairly safe in Kiev. And I'd drive down east and get this massive adrenaline hit. And then a day later, be driving back to Kiev. And it was like, okay, that was high and then low. But actually being based in the east, it just means we can get so much more done. And I wouldn't be living in the east if I wasn't here long term. And I wasn't I wouldn't have those contacts that mean I can get a, a decent house and yeah. have a, a good network. And I mean it feels like home now. Where I live is it feels like home. Really? And you yeah, I'm assuming that you know the people who live around you and yeah. and you talk to them regularly when you're there. Yeah, I got a, I know a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of Western volunteers as well. So it's a really good network where I live. That's awesome. And we're we're the last big city before you hit the front. Yeah. We're 20 Ks, roughly 20 Ks at the closest point to the action. That's 12 miles for America. Yeah. Just about. <laughs> but I mean, we, I mean, where the guys live, where the unit is, it's 
seven Ks. So we, I mean, yeah, we go all over. We definitely spend a fair amount of time in the fun stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. I much prefer being down there. It's can get more work done. It's more exciting. It's you kind of feel like you're making making a bigger difference rather than just being one of those dickheads that lives in the big city. <laughs> oh. Makes loads of photos for Instagram and then doesn't actually do any work. <laughs> Speaking of dickheads, um, <laughs> so there was a lot of I saw a lot of people talking about volunteering in the beginning. Yeah. And I would say probably the vast majority of them who spoke about it didn't end up doing it. Did you have any kind of experiences with people who went to Ukraine, like you said, for the wrong reasons, taking Instagram photos and doing it for clout? Did you have any run-ins with people like that? Or so many. Really? Yeah, so many. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to mention names. I'm happy to tell people names if they want to message me and ask because I want people to know who these people are to avoid. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, for example, this one guy I was working with, he was one of the guys that I sort of was initially planning to meet up with and got over there, met up with him. He seemed like a good guy. He seemed like he knew what he was talking about. And then as we did a bit of work together, I'm like, this guy knows nothing. Really? He's just a complete Walter Mitty. <laughs> just, yeah, like complete waster, was taking money off me, was, he basically had a, taken a loan out in Canada where he's from, like a seven grand loan to pay for everything and then had no plans of paying it back. And just his plan was to go to Ukraine and just hide from problems back home. Just stay Ukraine. there. Yeah. And, that sounds uh, like a horrible idea. I mean, great if you want to hide from <laughs> shit, but it's kind of kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but I've like planned it, and I'm quite financially stable. So yeah, <laughs> he was. I mean, yeah, and I so very quickly I realized that he introduced me to some good people who I'm still very close with. But we very quickly, with these good people, realized that I was like, I can't work with this guy. He's going to be a liability for us, for himself. Yeah, and he's unfortunately still in Ukraine doing stuff he shouldn't be doing. Wow, and yeah, it's like everyone knows that he's a dickhead. But it's like, you know, we've been trying to get people to recognize it, but it's, yeah. you don't want to start throwing shit because then people start throwing it right back at you. It's like a very back channel kind of thing. You're yeah, I'm sure. People. Well, because I'm sure everybody knows once you're seen as a certain type of person, word gets around fast, especially if you're a shithead. Word gets around fast in country, but I mean, on a social media profile. No, like, oh yeah, it's just, completely just different. just get away with it. Like, so there's this other guy Another Canadian, actually. I'm not. I don't hate all Canadians. It's just <laughs> don't have to be Canadians. All the shitheads happen yeah. to Canadians. It's uh, going in Canada. Saying that, one of the guys I work with, Brett, who is one of the best guys I know, he's Canadian. So you know, right, balances out. But there's other guy, and he's one of the best. The best person you know isn't Canadian, though. I'm just trying to think. I mean, Brett probably is the best guy I know out there. Just well, all rounder. That's. I'm sure he's gonna. If he, well, I don't know if he listens to this, <laughs> but. <laughs> All right, Canada, you saved yourself. But this other guy, and he just did Instagram, all about Instagram. Taking, you go on his Instagram and it's such a laugh. And he just has, it looks like he has a professional photographer go around with him. Wow. Just like posing the whole time. Isn't that wild that you've got this ability for people to go and do this like war tourism? And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the only other thing I can really think of where it was on such a grand scale was Rhodesia. You know, when they were, when they were saying, there were ads. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there were ads all around the world saying, come fight communists or whatever. And it's the same, like washed out kind of ex soldiers who want to, yeah. Not not saying all the guys that come over and fight. No, no, no. Of course. Attracts that kind of like, but also civilians and was just kind of like, there were these ads that kind of sold it as like this macho adventure to go on. And I feel like there are some people trying to live up to that. Yeah, there are people that try and live up to that. And in doing so, they only post what they think is like the match or adventure side of things. Yeah. And it kind of creates a cycle because then more people see that and they go, oh, sweet, we get to go and 
save lives and inspire kids. Take a picture next to a blown up tank. Yeah. I've done my part. But when in reality, it's like it's brutal over there. Like it's really brutal over there. Like it, it's it's the best thing I've ever done, and it's something that I will. You know, I'm not. I've got no plans to leave Ukraine until. Well, I'm kind of set up there to live there now. I want to live there. Really, it's better than the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just like people kind of think that it's some kind of place you can come and just take some photos and be a tourist and have a nice experience and then get out of there. But in reality, it's like especially if you spend any amount of time in country rather than you know visit Kiev and then get out. Yeah. And but I all of us, all us volunteers, we love slagging off war tourists because the vast majority of them come in and they put themselves at risk, put soldiers at risk because you know if something goes wrong they've got to try and soldiers have to then rescue them or take up valuable resources. Yeah, absolutely. And then they a lot of them have terrible OPSEC, so they're posting their locations and it's just a nightmare. But I would love to see more people come to Kiev, Lviv, and Dnipro. And just like, don't come as a war tourist, come as a tourist. Like the country, it's, yeah, there's obviously a war on and it's dangerous and we're having attacks on all the, all the big cities, but it's pretty safe. Like if, as long as you're not close to the front line, yeah, the big cities are pretty safe. I wondered that because, you know, there are still people living their lives yeah. in the majority of, in a large portion of Ukraine. And I felt like it would be weird to go there, almost disrespectful to go there while they have a war going on. So it's cool. Not that I have any plans on going to Ukraine because <laughs> I have a one-year-old and uh, I'm out of vacation time. But um, <laughs> it's kind of neat to hear you say that there's still a tourism aspect of it and that people should still go there because I think it shows that the war is not... I'm only speaking for myself here. There are times where I see videos... I see videos of the front lines and then I see videos of explosions in cities and it makes me feel like the country is falling apart. And it's sad because I know it's not. And I know it's like, it'd be like if we had a war in the Northeast here, but South Carolina was still, and South was still okay. And it's hard to keep perspective of that, I think, with with how the media paints it. Because... You know, there's talk of nukes every day. Putin's going to drop bombs. And it makes you think that, like, Ukraine's a third world country, but it's not. That's, I mean, the impression I got. You you see any old Soviet films that have got, like, you know, Soviet locations, and it's all gray and misty and cold and and miserable. Whereas in reality, Ukraine is absolutely beautiful. It's a stunning country. Ukraine has a similar climate as we do, like, as the Northeast does. It's, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty. I think we're similar as far as, like, uh, I'm. Man, I'm making myself sound like an idiot this podcast, but uh, <laughs> they're horizontal to us. Yeah, same, same latitude. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah got I mean, the sailor on to correct my head. <laughs> it is a beautiful country. The cities are stunning. Yeah. I mean, the landscape in the east just reminds me so much of the ocean. Like you have these, in fact, like most of the country, you have the, it's very flat. So if you like mountains, it's not the best place to go. <laughs> Unless you want to go to the Carpathians, which are stunning. But you've got this very flat country with lots of lot like massive rolling fields, endless horizons, wow. incredible sunsets. And it, it looks like sailing offshore. It feels like, and that also like kind of slight nervous excitement as you're driving towards the front line kind of feels like, yeah. you know, getting sails up and everything. But on the whole, it's a beautiful, beautiful country and it has been really done dirty by the war because, as you say, that everything focuses on the war and the destruction. Whereas in reality, when you're further away from the front, it's a very small part of life, mm-hmm. which is can be a problem because a lot of people are seeming, seeming to forget the war's on. 
but it also means that the cities are absolutely thriving. Like key, still living. Yeah, key like all the way down to like Nipro is sort of the last big city before you get to the front, so war zone. That's still absolutely packed. It's very busy. There's people, you know, clubs are open until I think 11 o'clock curfew, but that's probably changed now. Yeah. And life goes on. And it shows that the country isn't beaten because they're, you know, people are still going out. They're still having fun. They're still enjoying themselves. And it shows, and there's been a lot of media saying, oh, why are they going to McDonald's? Why are they going out at night in the, when there's a war on? It's like, well, part of the reason everyone's fighting is so that people can do that. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's such an incredible perspective to have because that's, that's what they're fighting for. Yeah. You know, what, yeah, what good is it if they're staying inside their homes and they don't have to? And you talk to soldiers and there's a lot of soldiers that are very, they kind of go back to Kiev and it's, there is this issue with what we call the Kiev elite have kind of forgotten about the war and it's, it feels like it's the East problem because that's how it's been for a long time. It's been, you know, with the conflict starting in 2014 or the yeah. war starting in 2014 and only the full scale starting in 2022. So the war has been going on a long time. And people are very used to that. Oh, it's in the east. It's Donbass. It's it's you know it's because that's always been the contested area. Yeah, and so when it all kicked off, and when especially when Kiev was getting hit hard over the winter, and we were expecting these massive power failures, and we're expecting you know thousands of people to die in the cities, and so everyone was still over winter. People were kind of like, okay, the war's still on. The war's still on. A lot of people hadn't come back. A lot of the refugees hadn't come back because we were expecting a bad winter. And then as we came into spring and people realized that we'd survived the winter, basically, people kind of started switching off a little bit from the war. People came back who had been gone the whole time. So they hadn't experienced what it was like there. Yeah. And this is very like, as a Westerner who's been over there since, what, 10 months now, 11 months, I definitely don't have all an authority to tell Ukrainians how to live. But it, it just, as more people come back and it kind of the city gets, city gets safer as we get more air defense... Kiev was starting to feel like uh, they didn't really care about the war. And you got a lot of soldiers going back who were not too happy with how they were living. Yeah. And how they kind of felt like... Probably disrespected. Yeah. But it wasn't so much the fact that people were living their lives normally. It was the fact that they were living their lives normally and forgetting about the soldiers. Yeah. Because when you're in the East, you go to a gas station, petrol station, so <laughs> a minute too long. Um, <laughs> he said gas station folks we got <laughs> I want a you know <laughs> pretty much an American except you drive better apparently <laughs> but um, yeah you have these free coffees for soldiers in the petrol stations well, you know, and you know you walk in and even we get away with it sometimes as volunteers and you know you have soldiers to the front of the line in all the shops and it's a lot of yeah respect for the soldiers because in the east they really feel it you know they yeah. really feel it they live it Exactly. Um, but then when they go back to the cities and leave or medical leave, and then it's suddenly it's like, oh, I'm waiting for my coffee or, you know, it's little things that I wouldn't say a kick in the face, but it, stuff that can be taken as a bit of like, bit of disrespect, a bit of, yeah, we're fighting in these, we're giving everything. And then people over here are still kind of switching off and ignoring it. There is a big disconnect. I think a lot of it is because people don't really see... You know, soldiers only see one side of things. They sit on the front line, then they go back and they see all the partying. But they don't see that, okay, this office, and using an example that of a friend of mine there, her office has a you know soldiers fighting on the front who work with them. So they've done collections to raise money for their friends. And then there are some towns and communities that do... One of the teams we work with briefly, they were from a small town in the West, and they had, I don't know how many soldiers 
from their town fighting on different locations on the front. Oh, wow. So they would, all the townspeople would have a collection. They would buy equipment that was requested and then four or five of them would jump in their lorries and drive the entire length of the front line. And just drop off just goods to the people who lived in the town. And they'd also, they were chatting with, someone was chatting with their son and, you know, oh, I need, my unit needs three or four pairs of boots. And then it all gets, to, it all gets fundraised for and delivered. So there is, there is like a lot of Ukrainian support. And it's something that we as Westerners do very little in, in Ukraine. Like we bring a lot of experience and you bring in a lot of people who've got backgrounds that are very applicable to the work. But we do so little of the actual work on the ground. And I know this is going to piss off a lot of Western volunteers. <laughs> honestly, like get yourself together. You're not that special. <laughs> well, so, I think that's, I think it's important to keep perspective there because at the end of the day is their country and yeah. they have stake in it. I know you're saying that you want to live there, but there are people who have lived there for generations yeah. and the sense of community that they have is something that a volunteer, it's tough, I would imagine, it's tough for a volunteer to grasp, regardless of how good their intentions are. Yeah, culture-wise, language-wise, exactly. it's very difficult to pick it up. I think of this guy that I work with who's lived in the town that I work in for his whole life, and we'll be passing a house in the truck, and he'll say, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's house. Mm. Her sister, I went to high school with her sister, and her mom does this for work. And it's funny, we we passed the, the mom's house, my brother dated the mom and you know, it's, he's got all these connections that he knows about and, oh, this person sold his house to this person and now they've got two kids. And it's a level of community that me being somebody from outside the town, even who has not lived there ever, just works there, has no idea. I can't even fathom that kind of connection. So going to somebody's country is tenfold, you know, and I think people doing what you're doing and what you've done is extremely important. I think it's it's got to mean something to see Western support. I'm sure it's one thing to receive funding and receive equipment, but to see, see people there is something entirely different. You're taking the most valuable thing belonging to you, your life, your, you as a person, your agency, and you're choosing to be over there. So I, I commend you for that. I don't think I even have to say that, but <laughs> that's... Uh, we definitely yeah. get treated very well over that. Like that's this, good. This, uh, you know, you... They're very, very happy to see. And as you said, it's that, it's that, you know, we have given a lot to go over there and people recognize that. And we certainly haven't given as much as, as the Ukrainians give. We, as I said, we all make the choice to be there. They don't. Yeah. But, you know, we get looked after so well. You rock up to a village and when I was doing water delivery down in sort of in the south, we were somewhere where there wasn't too much, where there wasn't any, any risk of, of shelling, which was nice. Nice working somewhere, a bit safer for a change. <laughs> You, you turn up to these villages and a couple of hundred houses, fewer people because of obviously the, the wars going on, so people have fled. But you know, you go up to the first first house, you're delivering water, and then they bring out a jar of homemade pickles for you. Wow. And then you go to the next house and it's a jar of compote, or it's a big block of salad, it's like pork fat, or yeah. it's, it's something. And then you get to the, it's like one o'clock and you're baking hot, and then you, you get to a house and they're having lunch and they invite you in for lunch. And then you you know you're sitting sitting at a table with a load of Ukrainians. You don't speak a don't speak a shared language, but you're just having the best time. And you know you can communicate to them that you're from the UK or from Canada or wherever you're from. And they're just over the moon that you're there. Yeah, it's really cool to it's cool to have that. I don't do it for the appreciation. I don't do it for anything. Any yeah, of course you didn't know you were going to be appreciated yeah. when you went over there in the first place. But it's really cool to like feel like you certainly feel like you're making a difference in their lives 
from like a morale point of view. Yeah. And, you know, delivering several thousand liters of water makes a difference as well. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. I mean, that's, you know, if you don't have running water, we we take that kind of stuff for granted. You know, yeah. if, if you haven't showered in a week, getting water, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, the water stuff was awesome. Like really, really, really productive, really made, made a massive difference. Um, put a lot of strain on the truck though. <laughs> put a lot of strain on the truck though. Yeah. <laughs> My car was battered after carrying a ton or half a ton of water everywhere. <laughs> hey there, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you do like what we're about and want to support us, our Patreon is a fantastic way to do so. It allows us to improve the podcast in many ways and helps fund our alcoholic coffee beverage stash to assist on those late night recording sessions. Now you may be thinking, this podcast has me absolutely smitten and I would love nothing more than to throw money at you, but what's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you become a patron, you automatically get access to an exclusive collection of clips from the podcast not heard anywhere else. On top of that, we have a wide range of tiers available that will get you merch, discount codes, and even free gear delivered to you monthly. For any patrons currently listening to this, we are super thankful for your support and for keeping the dream alive that one day I will be able to meet Andrew and make sweet, sweet podcast magic with him in person. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash abetterway2a in the episode notes for the podcast or on the link in our Instagram bio. All right, now, that's all for that. Back to the show. So I want to know, you obviously went over there with the intention of coming back. What was it like? What was it like? So I want to know, you obviously went over there with the intention of coming back. What was it like coming back? Like, what was your first few days back like? So, I've been out of Ukraine twice now. I still haven't been back to the UK. I went to Malta in February, January, I can't remember. That was a bit of a shock. A massive fan of Malta. <laughs> I think you told me that once before. But it was nice to be somewhere that wasn't getting shelled. But I was still very on edge. That was just after we'd done the, the back mood trip. So, I was quite, you know, still kind of working like still on that level of like adrenaline and then getting to somewhere that was very quiet was nice but it was also like a bit of a shock yeah but i hadn't also when i was doing that i'd been living in kiev not just posting on instagram but um, <laughs> i've been living in kiev so i was a bit away from the action and it was like okay so it's a it's a, going from a big city to a smaller city it was kind of fine and then coming here after being in kramatorsk for four months was it felt like a culture shock like got back got here and I've, I've been here before but it was just a real kind of four days of traveling from the front line to here and suddenly I'm surrounded by people surrounded by pe people that aren't worried about the war you haven't got shelling you haven't got air raid alarms going off and it was it was a bit of a shock yeah it was a I'm real sure. it was a real shock and it was it took me it took me a bit of time to adjust to it and even now like fireworks we haven't had you guys love your fireworks <laughs> so I've been a few times where you know, <laughs> a few times where it's throwing me off a little bit and it's just yeah it's you know still some part of me still over there and I'm looking forward to getting the rest of me back over there but it's yeah I, I don't think I'll ever kind of not feel at least a little bit on edge I mean like you know you can obviously I have not been or not experienced anything close to what the guys fighting have experienced or guys fighting who, who you know vets like yourself I didn't fight. I didn't. I didn't get to fight anywhere. <laughs> you know, guys that have been in been to Afghanistan, Iraq, yeah, yeah. and been in combat. You know, certainly haven't experienced anything like that. But I think it's just a testament to how intense the war is. When I'm, we as a team are working places like town called Shasivyar. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I, just, I just have to show them a picture of my daughter. Sorry, I totally derailed you there. I I, I was like, I haven't checked on my wife in a while. 
Um, but so, we, yeah, so place called Chassis Viar, and that is like just town just outside Bakhmut, and it's probably like the last real safe place that volunteers can get to. But yeah, you're going in places like that, and it's, you know, there's this constant noise. Yeah. Constant. You're not getting shot at. Oh, yeah. Comparing it to guys that have seen combat. Like, yeah, this <laughs> weird. In Chassis you Thank you for taking this podcast <laughs> back on track. You're close enough to be a target. Uh, you're close enough that there is artillery, drones, there's constant shelling. Um, you're in front of our gun line. So it's fun driving through that. That's got to um, be wild. Yeah. it's The drive in and out is always good fun. But it's, yeah, you've got armor, you've got armor on, but you know, you're not ducking down the whole time. You're not running between buildings trying to find cover. It's just, there's that threat. Yeah. So there's always that something going on. And even further out, I mean, there's still that threat of missiles. There's, you can still hear the war in the background. So it's there's, there's always a low-level conflict going on. Where no matter where you are on the front, there's always, you either hear it, see it, or smell it. And it's that, it kind of never stops. Never, mm-hmm. You never really leave that, always being that like slight sense of heightened yeah. awareness. So and then coming back here, it takes its toll on you. I'm sure, I'm sure. I can't even imagine that's, being on edge like that constantly. I mean, that's this is one of those things that, you know, we've had drones for years now, but not at all at the scale that we've seen used in Ukraine. And you've got people that are completely oblivious getting ended from yeah. kamikaze drones and drones dropping grenades on you. I mean, that's miles from the front, miles from the person that's controlling it. And with things like artillery and conventional bombs with airplanes. I mean, those are locations that you can track. You can see from space, artillery and things like that. You can track airplanes in the sky. But I mean, drones are pretty much invisible to a lot of the technology that we have now until it's too late. And that's a whole different aspect that you've got to contend with that uh, I can't imagine like thinking about constantly, (laughs) you know? The drones, probably the drones and mines are probably the two things that scare me the most over there. And... I've been lucky, never had any run-ins with mines. I had one run-in with a drone. It's actually quite a funny story. It was with the unit. And uh, stay, 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 you know, occasionally stay with them. And we were, yeah, like 7K from the front. So it's within drone range, but it has to be a very brave operator. <laughs> but it's still, there's still that risk. Yeah. Like it's not something that you're like really, not something that you're really thinking about, but it's like, you know, it's the front line. Yeah. And um, it's, it's like frontline adjacent. And so I was, you know, I was with the guys, I was out in the evening, went to the outhouse and a beautiful summer's evening, um, clear sky, see the, see the stars, war sounds off in the background and uh, all the cicadas and you could hear all the wildlife going off. And it's just, you know, I took a minute just to enjoy it. And I just heard the buzz and I was like, that's a drone. <laughs> it's like straight away, it's, it's like just panic. And you're just sitting on the toilet. Well, I saw standing outside. Luckily, oh, okay. Luckily. I was like, man, there's, was, there's was, worse ways to go out, but there are definitely better ways. I'd, I'd finished the job, luckily. That's good. <laughs> I was just standing. off real quick. Yeah. <laughs> just standing outside and uh, I was like, shit, that's a drone. And so I, I ran like into the next door yard and just got into cover. I dived under this car. And I was like, just, just sitting there with my, my hands on my neck. It's going like, fuck, this is bad. And I'm um, sitting there waiting. And then I hear a thud as something lands. And so I like, roll out under the car, put sort of my body, the, the engine block and the wheel between where I land, or I heard the thing land and just start counting. And then just sort of got to about 20, nothing had happened. And I was just like, okay, was that a dud? Was it, what happened? And I just, I sort of, Stay there for like a minute or so, just 
honestly paralyzed, absolutely terrified. Eventually managed to go back inside and see the guys. I'm like, oh, guys, they just had a drone. He was like, oh yeah, they, they train around here. Oh. So it was a Ukrainian. <laughs> oh, man. And they just dropped, like, we never found what they dropped, but it was probably like a potato or something. <laughs> so somewhere, some drone operator has got footage of me just... Fracking up as he drops it. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, what a way to troll people. Like, can you imagine taking potatoes and dropping them on people? Like, just... I mean, and that's, genius, but... Yeah, ge- yeah absolutely. But that's... Oh, my God. That's... Like I still like now, like someone was we were was sailing a couple of weekends ago and there was someone flying a drone and I was set me on edge. I'm sure and I was like, oh, fuck, this is gonna be the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, there's always that risk that it's just I heard it because it was a clear night and it was, you know, nothing no other or hardly hardly any other sounds. But if yeah. you're in a car oh, yeah. or if you're you're in a you know, you're in a city or something, you're not gonna hear it. It's and you know, the grenade drop ones and then there's the FPV drones. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no getting away from those. It's really scary. I can't even imagine. That's, I mean, it's literally like having the hand of God, like in those video games where you can turn on God mode and just like poke people, yeah. you know, and, and then yeah. in the video games. That's what a drone is, really. You know, you've got the ability to, to, I mean, like the old fly by wire missiles, you know, I mean, they still have them, tow missiles, I think, mm. are fly by wire, but. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy the capabilities that people have now to just reach out and touch someone. And well, unfortunately, both sides have that. Yeah, that, I mean that that drone warfare is you know every war has its brings progression. Yeah, every you know every like first world war. Was, was but we were massive. convinced after Afghanistan and Iraq that we would never see conventional warfare again, side versus side with uniformed forces. You know, we got our buttholes destroyed <laughs> by guerrilla warfighter guerrilla fighters and and. Um, uh, we, you know, we were convinced that that's how wars were going to be fought. So to see things kind of coming full circle, and you've got conventional warfare side versus side now, yeah. but also combined with something like a drone, people commercially available drones. Yeah, it's and it's almost it's a bit of like a bit of a kick in the teeth to the American defense industry. Absolutely. Suddenly, you know, they're putting billions into UAVs, and then suddenly. I on got, Amazon, I now got people, with a I got with a FPV drone and a RPG warhead. Yeah, is taken out. People are 3D printing stabilization devices yeah. for hand grenades and f- dropping them like mort bombs, mortar it's shells. Incredible! Like the, yeah. the innovation is is scary, but it's also like really interesting to see. And it's I'd be very interested to see how this military application is used in the civilian world if it is applicable. Well, I've been waiting for drone delivered pizza for. <laughs> So long, and I've been disappointed every single time. <laughs> I've seen a few videos of, uh, yeah, you know, soldiers stuck in trenches getting rations dropped on them. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely going that way. Yeah. Food, the food delivery is uh, <laughs> going to be hopefully a thing in the future. Yeah, for sure. I could definitely see that happening. I know how the show ends, I know it's going to be some advice. So, I'm like, let's have something good ready to go. And now I've forgotten everything. <laughs> that's the way it goes, though, right? I, Take down little notes though when I'm thinking of this. I just yeah. noticed you had a My Little Pony on the back of your phone case. Is that what that is? <laughs> so my friend Ryan, he's an American. He lives in Kiev, and he's not a volunteer. He's a teacher. He's been there since two years now. And he's just like this really nice guy. And having a guy who speaks English in Kiev who's not connected with my work has just been amazing. Like a friend that 
can just chill out with. And, you know, we always, we always talk about the war, but it's like not, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. So it's just really good to be able to like have this guy, absolute legend. That's awesome. Nicest guy in the world. And uh, yeah, just be able to like chill out with him. And, uh, and he gave you the My Little Pony the sticker. Pony sticker yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have friends like that, man. <laughs> so this is the advice you're going to leave us with. I really want to talk to you about your opinion on gun laws being a Brit and being pro-gun. <laughs> but we might save that for we part two. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He sent me pictures of him shooting an AK for the first time. <laughs> and he just, it looked like genuine, like childish joy. <laughs> like pure, I, pure joy. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that for sure. It's practical. Yeah. Like, it's oh, of the, course it's, it is. It's the same reason it's like a lot of people in America have guns. Like it's, it's a tool. It's practical. It's That's how I open my tuna cans. It's how I open my beers. How I open but, my beers. <laughs> You know, if you get a knife that's easy to open one-handed, yes. then you can open your beers while you're driving. <laughs> but, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, but if you I, shotgun beers while you're driving, that's the most efficient way to drink them so that you don't keep your eyes off the road for too long. And it's, you know, your seatbelt actually has a bottle, your seatbelt has a bottle opener built in. Why Next would time, they do that if you weren't meant to drink and drive? Next time. Well, you don't have your seatbelt on in the first place. That way you're ready to go. Yeah. Right. Let me see if I've got a... Always have lozenges. Always have lozenges. That's your pearl of wisdom? <laughs> no, that is not my pearl of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Always have lozenges. Hydrate or die. Okay. Stay hydrated. Drink water. Have water Have water on you. Like most problems people have, and I, I'm not some woo-woo, like I don't I do not do all the, like, the, the alternative medicine. Like I'm, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're not concentrating, drink some water. Stay hydrated. It's so easy to get hydrated. Andrew, this is his piece of advice he's leaving us with and you're fucking ruining it he's got a good point though. this is this moment did you just that's that's terrible advice like everyone knows to drink water anyway so no no i know people who specifically hate to drink water yeah i, I know people that don't drink water and it's weird that's so weird although i have been drinking shit loads of gatorade while i've been here he's actually leaving now we'll definitely have to do it if you're keen to yeah 100 percent. i'm keen <laughs> the fuck do you mean of course I'm keen <laughs> Eddie thank you so much I'm keen as fuck boy Eddie thank you so much for coming well coming I drove to you motherfucker uh, thank you so much for giving me a chance to speak and um, yeah hopefully it's not all volunteer bullshit no I'm super glad that you were on the show finally man we'll have to get together for a second time for sure, and, uh, for sure. yeah we'll uh, part two part two part two awesome all right. Drink plenty of water. Yeah, drink water. <laughs> such good advice. <laughs> and, and that's the best. That's such, such good. I don't think it's been given. An, yeah. I'm going to get something decent and write it down next time. Awesome. It was definitely caught with my, caught with my pants down. Yeah. All right, Eddie. Uh, next time you come, make sure not to bring shit advice. Yeah. And uh, we will uh, talk to you later. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah.